episode number 56, Susan Benson. Welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz, and this time I have an interview with senior Canadian designer Susan Benson. This is the next in my series of interviews done in Vancouver in December of 2018. I met Susan on Salt Spring Island over the holidays in December, and she was a delight to talk to. We speak about her time growing up in England and training as a fine artist and her move to Canada in the mid-60s when Canadian theatre was finding its voice. She went on to a 45-year career at the Stratford Festival with many years spent as the head of design. Now, since I've spoken to Susan back in 2018, she's been the most deserved recipient of a member of the Order of Canada in July of 2019. Congratulations, Susan! Now, I had originally tried to time this with the release of Pat Flood's new book, Susan Benson, Art, Design, and Craft on Stage, back in May. It curates much of Susan's most memorable and important work, but alas, school has taken over and I'm just getting back to it now. Now, to follow along with a visual aid to our conversation, you can check out that book or check for a link to Susan's own design page in the show notes. There's lots of visual material there that speaks to our conversation. Now, I also want to alert you to a live taping of the title block on October 6th, 2019, when I will interview Sholem Dolgoy on the occasion of his retirement from Ryerson Theatre School. Now, I spoke to Sholem in episode 13, but we had only an hour to talk and there is so much more he wanted to say. Please join us at the Ryerson Main Stage Theatre on October 6th from 1900 to 2200 hours to launch Sholem into his retirement and celebrate a terrific design and teaching career. And just to remember to check out the show notes at titleblock.com. And if you like the show, please go to patreon.com slash the titleblock podcast and help support these efforts. Now, here's my conversation with Susan Benson. Susan Benson is one of Canada's national theater treasures, quite honestly. Uh, she's worked in Canada since 1966 as a set and costume designer. Uh, and she was the head of design at Stratford for many years, starting in 1981. She has many stories to share with us about the history of theatre in Canada, and I'd like to welcome her to the title block. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, and we are meeting here. Uh, you've graciously invited uh, me into your home. You live here with, at Salt Spring Island with uh, Michael Whitfield. Uh, and it's a bit of a rainy day outside, but it's been a beautiful trip so far out here in my uh, Vancouver uh, travels, um, and I'm happy to be here. So, uh, Susan, tell me first, um, where did you grow up, and how did you find your way to theater? Oh, golly, it's a long way back, dear. It's 77 years ago. I was born in Britain during the war. That has actually has had... A tremendous effect on me I've realized over the years um, and my mother and my grandmother and going back about 
two or three other generations were in the theatre. My mother had a theatre school, which Chris Timothy at the moment is doing this road programme on um, one of the knowledge networks. And Chris Timothy was one of my mother's students. Primarily what she would do was coach people to go to Lambda or Dorada in England. She was also an adjudicator for the Sunday Times Drama Festival for Harold Hobson. So she also saw a lot of young performers right away across the country. But because I grew up in theatre, I was carried on as a bareback rider in a review when I was four, I think. Uh, I shall always remember the makeup being put on. I hated it. Um, And saw... John Neville at Shylock at the Old Vic um, worshipped Tanya Mazevich from a distance, from a very young age, had relatives at Stratford-on-Avon. So I used to go go there at 14 and queue up for the gods, tickets in the gods at sort of 3 o'clock in the morning to make sure I got one. So it was a long a long history in the theatre before I even came over here in 66. Uh, And you trained in the UK. Yes. Uh, Did you train in performance or design or was it a... It balanced. Mm -hmm. Um, I trained with my mother with a lot of theatre directing and acting movement I also, she had this link with Lambda, so I would, um, uh, I had quite a strong connection with Lambda, and at the end of my art training, uh, one of the people working at Lambda really wanted me to start acting professionally. Um, That gave me a very sound basis, though, as a designer, because I actually, from the time I was a small child, I actually did want to be a designer. And so I, my art training in Britain was primarily based on painting, and that's a subject I can go into in great depth. Uh, I'm very interested in how designers are trained, especially nowadays, where I have problems. Um, the training I had as a painter... And my background in theatre were my starting points in the theatre. And then after being at Bristol, I went through a Shakespeare company, which was in a funny way my theatre, as I'd say, I queued at three and four in the morning to go and see productions. Um, And I went to the Royal Shakespeare Theatre Company to work in wardrobe. And... I cleaned sewing machines, I sewed hems. It was funny, I, and I watched, I watched, I watched. And I learned from being sent over t- to the main theatre, to the armory, and having one of the senior actors come up and ask, saying, I'm going to remove these metal chunks, because he was in the uh, Wards of the Roses, designed by John Berry. And I used to watch this fabric being put together, and it was fabulous and very exciting. But it was car off cut set into 
uh, glues and things to create this wonderful texture on the fabrics. I learned from watching that, but I also learned from the fact that Rod Donald Sinton comes up to the armory. He's saying, I cannot work with this actual weight. And I just, and this is what a lot of young designers don't understand, just watching how other people work, what other people do. You can see where problems occur. You can learn from that. And it does, if you start to learn on your on the job, you're putting yourself in a way at a disadvantage because you don't always know the problems that can occur. But um, I worked uh, there and I also worked at BBC Television as a dresser. Fabulous experience for a designer because when I um, ended up designing costumes for John Hirsch's American uh, History of American Film at the National Arts Centre, that was a pro huge production which went from black and white into colour covering all the periods of film. And I could tell them exactly how to set up quick changes because I'd gone through it. All those things that I went through, all those experiences in my youth added up to what I became as a designer. Too many people nowadays want to go from theatre school and be the designer. Sorry, dears, you're not going to learn your craft that way. Yeah, it's, that's uh, that is a, a a lesson that we've learned several times on the show from people as well. Um, that's great. That's great. And and you had done. Where was the painting uh, training? The kind of fine arts training. Were you getting that in the UK as well? Like where did yes. you go? Oh, before we go there as well, Lambda. I don't know what this is. London I'm, Academy of Music and Dramatic oh, Art. Oh, I see. It's okay. the parallel to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Uh, that those three and Central School, those three are the major training centres in Britain. And in fact, I've got a feeling they've conglomerated them all into one university in London. Um, but a lot of major performers went through Lambda. Or, and the other one that they went through is Guildhall, which was my mother's school. So um, I, I was balancing up my theatre training but at the time, in Britain, when you go to art college and you see, I think all design, I think all the performance arts in all aspects should go through academies, not through universities. That's not a popular thing to say. But I've got to an age now where I don't care. Um, and I'll explain why I think that's important. A lot of designers in the theatre at that time were painters. And it's amazing when you look at the painters who've designed for theatre, coming up to the present day with David Hockney, but Matisse designed, Picasso designed, I mean, a whole range of people designed for the theatre. And most uh, um, designers, uh, Ludan St. Hill, John Piper, and I decided quite presumptuously at 19 because you went through that time in Britain you did 
four years, ending up with an NDD. The NDD, National Diploma of Design, was when you specialised. And before going into that programme, Britain had exhibitions across the country of um, each of the schools and the work that was being produced. And presumptuously, I didn't think much of the theatre design, and I thought, I'm going to go through as painting. And what I realised over the years is that design on the stage, a large percentage of it is a moving painting. You approach it in the same way visually. Yes, obviously, on top of that, you've got your characters and the, you're telling a story to your audience. But the the actual practical business of it, which is your eyes and looking, is honed by going through a paint, a program of painting. And that means doing it every day, all day, not having to go off to do social sciences or something else. I barely got that. I look back on those five years I did at art college and I barely covered everything that I needed as a visual artist. And designers are first and foremost visual artists. And I would stress they are artists because somebody said to me at the festival, and one thing, that designers aren't artists, they're craftspeople. And I said, I don't know what I've been doing for the last 50 years in that case. And the thing that was bad there was the design, good designer is an artist first and a craftsman second. The craftsman is a good craftsman first and an artist second. So if you don't have those combinations going, you will not create the, right, the proper sort of visual picture on stage. Uh, it is remarkable, uh, like this metaphor of theater and lighting gets this tag all the time about this painting with light. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I never thought to think about what that means from a practice standpoint, because the act of doing it seems pretty clear. And even when you're creating pictures on stage with between the director and the designer and the costume designer and the set designer, uh, like that, that, that composition is there. But the daily practice that you mentioned is something that we, like, I don't think I did at Ryerson. I went to Ryerson Theater School where we did mostly theater. There was one or two courses throughout the year that were social sciences that were external. But, you know, we did theater every day. But uh, the actual practice of the craft is not something that we did every day. And you're right, with an artistic practice, it is something you have to continue, right? Um. When you're a dancer, when you're a pianist, you, if you're good and an actor will do their vocal exercises, the dancer will do bar work, rehearsal work. So each of these artists practice every day. Our instruments are our eyes. They get very sloppy. I know that. And I've been painting that for seven years continually. And I know I am even more certain that it is very important for a designer to keep a sketchbook, not to do it on the computer, but to use your hand to draw because drawing is a form of thinking. Same with drafting by hand, same by drawing by hand. 
That's a great, that's a great point. Um, awesome. So then you finish your, um, you get your National Diploma of Design, NDD. Uh, and do you start working in Britain first before you come over here? Oh, yes. The, the problem, I did then after the NDD, I did the ATD, which is a specialized program. It's funny, all through my life, each thing has added an element that has helped me. So ADD helped me with teaching and coaching and helping assistants. And it was very specialized year to primarily training us to be art teachers, to go into art colleges. And in Britain, they were art schools, art colleges. They were not parts of universities. Um and each of those parts is added up to the whole, I realize. You can't dismiss any part of your experience. The only thing is that in doing that and becoming so specialized, you really need to, if you're going to be a theater designer, you almost need to do two or three years basic art training and then go and specialize for another two years which nowadays is so expensive. That makes me cross. That's a very good point. Um, and so what was your first... Did you design theatre while you were at art uh, college or art school? My first production was Alice Through the Looking Glass from my mother's theatre school, and I think the Theatre Museum I have those designs. And I think I was 12 or 13. That's delightful. So I'll, we'll we'll point people towards that, and uh, they'll. I know that they've changed venues, but it's in Toronto, and uh, we'll keep a link in the show notes for people to to be able to contact them and, and see those firsthand. Um, and then your design practice um, after you left art college again, you worked uh, in Britain before you came here as a designer. I weren't. I was starting to learn my craft. This is where I went through a Shakespeare company and BBC television, which were too big because I watched and I looked and I learned. And I think it's essential for young designers to go through that stage where they're, they're not designing, they're looking. Because in school, you're not, especially over here, you're not going to get that sort of experience. You need the practical experience of being around uh, professionals and really seeing how it all works. And if you throw yourself in too soon, I've seen this happen. Really clever designers were given opportunities on main stages where they hadn't had enough experience doing small shows with no money. And um, you can't keep it up. You can't keep the pace standards up. That way, if you do it, you're building a house on sand and not on rock. And then uh, what brought you to Canada? My, it was a difficult time in Britain. Uh, I went on, on and off theatre, I have to say. And uh, my parents had been to Paris. They came home one day and they said they want professionals, people who qualified in different areas to emigrate to Canada. And there was a, a lot of that happening in the 60s. So the whole family picked up and emigrated to Canada. And we went to Vancouver on the train. Biggest eye-opener. 
across the great you probably landed in montreal or halifax or something and then we sailed uh, first uh, place was quebec city that's where the immigration people came up yes i am an immig- immigrant i'm now a canadian citizen i am an immigrant we all are um and uh we we disembarked in montreal and they were doing expo was being built on the island uh, we got on the train and we went across the country. Most wonderful introduction to Canada. We went across to Vancouver on the train. Yeah. Uh, and it took days and days to get yes. across the country. Of I course. think it's about a week. Yes. Which is and a we week. had two dogs that fought. Oh, no. We, we loved them both so we couldn't <laughs> get rid of them. So whenever the train stopped on the prairies, a bit of bit of gold. We had to go up, walk miles, up, 20 minutes up to the guard's van when the train stopped to get the dogs out. And my father and brother would take one lot one way and my mother and I would take the other one the other way. It was absolutely crazy, but we used to do crazy things. It was actually a bit crazy coming to Canada and not having work lined up, but still. Uh, and then you landed in Vancouver. Uh, and you started, uh, this is 1966. Six. Mm. Um, so, uh, the, I mean, the theater was undergoing a rebirth. The the, the oh, yes. centennial was, there's lots of money floating around. People were building yes. theaters. And, and you had Pierre Trudeau, mm-hmm. very sophisticated, cultured man who understood the importance of the arts. You had something that was very important in this country. You had a lot of touring that went across the country. So you might have a group from back east coming to Vancouver and vice versa and art exhibitions and a lot of new theatres being built and a lot of new companies. And um, I worked on one of the first professional productions of a Canadian play at the Playhouse, which was the ecstasy of... Rita Joe. That I found exciting coming from Britain. And my mother went to teach voice at UBC and she said, having come from traditional theatre, how exciting and dynamic it was over here. And same thing at the Playhouse, doing working on Ecstasy of, of Rita Joe, which had... Um, Franny Highland and August Schellenberg, Chief Dan George, uh, and Mortifi, incredible cast and an incredible production, which I sense was one of the real starting points for getting theatre off and running, if you like, in this, because at the same time I was designing for the experimental theatre attached to the Playhouse, and the I was doing costumes then. The set designer just graduated from the National Theatre School. So you've got the first graduates coming out of the National Theatre School. I don't think people realise just and why this is so important that you're getting the history down, that it was very new in this country. There was a lot of resentment, I have to say, at that time for anybody who came from Britain. And it was something I was made conscious of. But people who came here from Britain, like Tanya, we all felt 
we wanted to contribute to building up a, a theatre that had very sound, strong um, bases. Uh, cutters who came over from Britain with Tanya went across the country. Cynthia McLennan, Canadian, but she related to a number of cutters and her work influenced the cutters she trained. I can see in all of these things, I can see the paths, the routes, the travels, why thing. And that's why I get very cross when people come and say, oh, that's old fashioned. Let's get rid of that. We don't need that. There's been a reason behind it. There was a reason why there was a focus at the festival stage as it was. If you're going to change those things, you have to know why they were there in the first place and why you're going to change it. Don't just do it to be clever or whatever. Do it for a reason. Because you have, otherwise there's no strength. You often destroy things. Yeah, I agree. And I, it, it strikes me as well that we, um, one of the arguments, for example, for um, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, um, I mean, since the 1920s, since the rise of radio, was to, f to build a coherent link. culture and link everybody. Yes. Um, and it never occurred to me how important touring was at the beginning of the what we would call the modern Canadian professional theater in the nineteen mid nineteen sixties uh, to again share those ideas yeah. not just building a theater theater community but sharing ideas in person from different parts of the country yes. with each other yeah yeah very very important and we have to hang on to that otherwise the the country gets separated up doesn't have a cohesion as you said. And and it's certainly and I, I I've done several interviews with people from Vancouver, uh, as everyone will know. This will be the seventh or eighth one in a row, and uh, a couple times we've talked about this barrier that still exists between Vancouver and the, because it's very expensive to get here. Yes, it's very expensive uh, to fly here, yeah. and yes. funds are limited, and and uh, Victoria and and Vancouver designers and actors and and directors and. And, uh, and 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 uh, creators don't get to share with the rest of Canada. Works often. both ways. Yeah, works both ways. Mm -hmm. And it and it's very sad, and it doesn't help the country as a whole. And that's why I was very lucky in the sixties to come here when I'm. Sorry, it was Pierre Trudeau who encouraged this. He understood how important the arts were. And the fact that the arts helped to give an identity to the country. And there is a strong identity, whether Canadians realize it or not. It's an extremely strong identity. One thing that makes me a little sad is Stratford. There was glory years there with, during the years of Robin, especially where we got international attention and Canadian theatre and production standards were way up. In many cases, people haven't understood how it got to that level. They just dismissed them as too expensive or we don't need to do that way, it's not necessary. And they have lost 
a lot of what made it very special. All right. Now, did you uh, uh, end up staying in Vancouver for, for long, or did you uh, start to reach out and start to work across the country? It it was very difficult those first years in Canada because we did come as a family and we were very close. Um, my mother was a primary... Um, um, she bought the money being at UBC, and then uh, UVic offered her a position. Uh, we tended, to, I look back on it now, we tended to work as a pack. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I stayed on in Vancouver for a bit because I did a lot of small shows at that time because it was centennial year. So Son of Raven, Son of Deer, um, um, Under Milk Wood, here in Victoria, building my own set, scored on me, um, in a rickety old house. <laughs> I look back, horrified, but still. Um, I learned all that. I was making my masks in the basement at home. That, and you had to be, if you don't have much money and much support, teaches you to be creative with the materials you do have. So if you go into a big theatre like Stratford, where it's all there for you, you miss a great gap of finding out for yourself. Um, and so I stayed, my parents moved to Victoria because she had a position with the theatre department. And then things happened and we ended going back East. I did meet my husband in Victoria because he came back from, he'd gone down to Villanova to do his master's and came back and was working that summer theatre programme, uh, giving, getting my mother tape recorders and things because she was teaching voice. Um, so that was one good thing that came out of here. Um, and then, but my family went all the way back to Ontario, and that's where the base was for many, many years. So it's only seven years ago that I've come back to the West Coast. Uh, and what kind of companies were you working with uh, back east? Were you in Toronto, or you were in Stratford, or where were you located? We'd, okay, okay, so what happened between going, uh, I ended up going to the Kravitz Center down at the States because, again, this is connections. You never know what connections. When we were in Vancouver, we met um, somebody called Peter Franklin White, who'd been a character dancer, principal character dancer with the Royal Ballet in Britain. Peter went down to this new performing arts center in the States, and they wanted a designer. So he contacted me. I went down there with a joint position, a prof in the theatre department as teaching design and also being the designer for John Burrell, who'd been one of the three with Rafe Richardson, Lawrence Olivier starting the old Vic up after the war. And John, uh, I was his designer there, so, uh, and I spent four years there, I think, but before that, when I was in Vancouver, I had designed for Michael Bortree 
and made a connection there. It's all about connections. So at the end of the four years, and Mike and I, Mike and I got together and we got married, and he was actually uh, working down at the University of Illinois. Uh, we both wanted to come back to Canada, funnily enough, during Watergate. Parallel parallels now. Um, we wanted to come back, and Michael Bawtree offered us both positions at Stratford, designing, in my case, the medium. Monotti's the medium with Maureen Forrester in her first operatic role. And the summoning of every man, a new Canadian opera, which Michael Bawtree was directing. And Michael, my Michael also picked up a position assisting Gil Wexler, um, this is Michael Whitfield, just so everyone is yes. keeping tabs. Yeah, Not Whitfield. You can call him the Whitfield, but it is Michael Whitfield. Um, and he, we, we worked on that show in the Patterson Theatre. The air conditioning was such that the Stratford Fire Department would come and draw water from the lake and pour it over the roof to cool it down. And in that space was this wonderful performer called Maureen Forrester with this beautiful voice. So there I am saying to her, and I don't know if you know the character of the medium. She is a medium and slightly eccentric and of a period 19... 30s, late 20s, 30s. And I said, oh, Maureen, your legs are too good. You look too nice. Mm -hmm. So she ended up wearing four pairs of Lyle stockings, wrinkled. It was supposed to be winter time, and I had her in a wool coat with a bird collar. She had a felt hat on her head. She wore it. I mean, she was wonderful. Um, and I worked with her after that, and every time she was such a person of the theatre. Uh, so that was our first experience. It was a very crude but wonderful theatre space because the wardrobe was being done. Oh, golly, I can tell you all these stories. It's going to take you five years, love. The wardrobe was in the same building where the green room was. Oh, sorry. And what was wonderful about that was the crew, the performers, the people building the costumes, the people doing the props were all in and out of that space, working in that space. The crew chasing squirrels out of the washrooms. Um, it was... And that space continued to create the wonderful, wonderful performances that I think it didn't have the stress of being at the main house. Um, it, it gave it... Uh, I think you have to 
to be relaxed when you're creating. If you get uptight, you'll never do your best work. And I think that's why so many good productions came out of the Patterson, because it was third in line. And and you didn't have that same artistic pressure. Um, and at the same time, Robin Phillips came in and I interviewed with him. I shall always remember that interview. Very frightening, going over there with my portfolio to show him my work. And there he was in the office, very handsome young man. And the question he asked, and I think it's important, why do you want to work here? And I had a portfolio where I had done a lot of work when I came to festival. And I said I wanted to see what happened with my work when I had really good people building it. And I think he, because to him, the people who built things, he would go into the wardrobe at 8 o'clock in the morning to sew. He would go and work on something in props. Those people were as important to the production as the designer. And he think, I think that I gave him the right answer, that, that I I wanted to improve my work by working with really good people. And on the medium, I had my first experience of a really good wig because Clayton Shields did this wig where I'd said to him, Clayton, I want the feeling that she dyes her hair, that horrible henna, henna orange, and you see the roots. And he created this fabulous feather-light wig. I mean, usually you see these great clunky helmets, but it belonged to her, it was part of her. All those details, and that was something that I've learned over the years, especially with somebody like Robin, it's those details, details, details. Um, that's that's fantastic. I love stories like that. I, I, I wonder... Um, if you could give me a sense, this is my Anna Maria Tremonti question, give us a sense, uh, of the of what the Tom Patterson, you said there was less pressure working there. Was it considered the place where you did the risky work? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I think so. I don't know if it felt that way later. Like later it felt like just they were programming a third space yeah. and yeah. there are big artists and they were doing big work there. Yeah. And it, yeah. No, you... you I mean, you would still, uh, um, I'm trying to think of the productions. And it's funny, it's one of the ones, Teresa did um, Comedy of Errors, and I've always found that play very interesting. I've done it two or three times myself, but she did it as very much as psychological design. I'm not sure at that point it would have worked on the festival stage, but from my point of view as a designer, I thought it was fabulous, that whole production. Um, very European, because she has that European edge to her work. This is Teresa Przybylski? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's great. Um, and uh, obviously that went well. Uh, he, uh, Robin Phillips brought you on for Medium and, and you stayed No, actually, there? Michael Baldry brought me oh, on. Oh, right, okay. So it's, yeah, yeah. oh, golly. It's okay. So many stories. Michael Baldry brought Michael and I on for um, the Medium to design, Michael to do the lights and me to do the sets and costumes for the Medium and Summoning of Everyman. 
summoning of every man, wonderful creative thing. And the special thing that happened for me on that one was there was Tanya that I'd worshipped as a small girl coming into the theatre and asking to meet me and telling me how fabulous she thought the show was. That is graciousness. That is giving. That is what theatre's all about. Very special. But then Robin asked me, I didn't hear anything, and I'm going, oh, everybody else is deciding he doesn't like me. Anyway, then I get the call to say, yes, they want me to decide. Twelfth night with David Jones, British director, I had to fly to Britain. They said to be the set model. They kept the set model for the festival stage at that time. They kept it in uh, one in Britain for work designers to work on. It's in storage over there. That says a lot about how everything worked back then. Eh? Oh yeah. yeah. Well, you think. That was two years after the first graduates out of the National Theatre School. There were very few, if you like, professional theatre designers around in this country. Um, And I have to say that Guthrie, Michael Langham, brought in people they knew. However, what Canadians have to be aware of there wasn't the history of it here. These people came in and they taught and gave information and gave ways of doing things to Canadians. So for people to say, oh, you Brits, sorry, it makes me a bit cross, don't you? That's something I don't like about theatre. I don't like to feel I've been used. Sorry, that's another political thing. You can cut that bit. (laughs) That's okay. Um, But... uh, um, Those people coming in, Maggie Smith, when she came in, she helped so many young actors and to a certain extent designers made you leap to a much greater height when you were working with somebody like that and to see how those people worked. Hume Cronin, there was a graciousness, like Tanya, a graciousness, a giving about them. Um, And I I think that was very important, especially in those early years, to give tips, to give ideas, to help improve what you were doing from their great background and experience where there was no way at that point, the Canadians could have that unless they'd been abroad. So it, it, it it's something I feel quite strongly about. And having lived here over 50 years, I feel I have a right to say things like that. Um, but Robin then asked me to do Twelfth Night. That was strange because going to Britain... Talking to David Jones, I had to go twice. First time, the set model was traditional. And then Robin changed the whole configuration. So it meant that all the work I'd done with David in Britain was out the window. So we go back to Christmas uh, Christmas time with the finished designs. But I had to rework the stage. And Robin, in his approach to the stage at Stratford, was very much less is more. It's all about the actors and putting focus on the actors. And you negate 
the set around you create it with lighting. Well, did you mean that he actually changed the configuration of yes. the, the Mozaevich uh, yes. original design? What did, can you tell us? What was removed or altered? Uh, uh, Michael can confirm all this, but um, the actual levels of the main area of stage it was brought up to the step under the balcony that used to be and now it's gone back to that so robin did it so that you could bring wagons on from upstage things like that uh michael's much better at theater architecture in that way than i am but one of the that was one of the main things that you could roll bigger elements on from upstage so that the actual levels of the chains uh, of the stage changed um and the balcony became removable which it hadn't been it was never intended that things should play up in that area when the balcony was removed but it did mean that with productions like the one he did with Maggie Smith of As You Like It, he could have a big tree in that area, or those doors that I that are on the wall, the drawing I did of the birds, which a drawing for um, doors that went up 16 foot, I think, uh, that looked like carved silver with birds of prey on for my production of Julius Caesar. You could do that with them, which you couldn't do when the balcony was always permanent but what it meant was that I had to practically redesign that first production very nerve-wracking for me going on to that stage um, I felt really nervous about it and two or three things threw me um, the fact that the faces of my designs are often where I start the designs because they bring the character out and what that character would be wearing. And often I didn't know who was cast. So I had to create, bring that person to life. And funnily enough, those faces and the people often knitted together when it came to it. It was just very strange how that happened. But in this case with Twelfth Night, I left the designs with David the next morning he goes back and he said, these are the costume designs. We, I don't think we should have faces. It gives the actors too many ideas. That really actually threw me for a loop because you will see that never happened. That's the only show that 12th night where there are no faces. And I've checked with so many actors like Nikki Pennell, so many people saying, does this worry you if I give you the sense of who I am seeing as a person? And they've all said, no, it helps a lot because it's the type of person you, you see in those clothes. Um, but it meant that there was Michael building half-inch scale furniture to go on this new setting for the strap for the stage, drinking coffee or cocoa at New Year's Eve in a hotel room, building a new design. And me, he was doing that while I was doing new costume sketches. And David was 
very picky. In the end, with one side, well, what colour is it going to be? What colour is it going to be? I got, I got a ballpoint pen. I said, this. I've never done that before or since, but he, I think he was wanting to make sure he'd never worked with me before. And I think he was wanting to make sure that he knew exactly. Very, I've had arguments with teachers in theatre design classes for wardrobe. They don't like directors near the fitting rooms. It's not right, this, because the director, unless they have a very strong visual sense, they see these drawings, the drawings are beautiful, they may be taken completely over them by the drawing and not by what actually is there. If you bring them as part of the collaboration from the rehearsal into a fitting, it isn't such a visual shock to them when they see the performance on stage in costume. They know, and the performers know, what's, it gives them so much of an idea. It, it, I do believe it's a collaboration. You can't just, I'm the designer, doesn't work. I am the person amongst a group of people putting on a play and we're all giving, in the end, to the audience. And that generosity of spirit, and I've said this so many times, has to go through the whole production process. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so I think that we got a good, I got a good <clears throat> uh, encapsulation of the transfer between Robin Phillips and John Hurst that you told me earlier. So I don't mm -hmm. think we have to repeat that. Um, but I did want to ask what changed... So Robin Phillips reconfigured the stage and he set a certain um, expectation for sparseness or a way that production should be done there by either doing his own shows or, or bringing in the designers that he thought were going to achieve that. Um, what happened after John Hirsch took over? Did the, did the tenor of the place change again? And if so, how? <laughs> John was such a clever man. He was a man of the theatre, as I said, as was Robin, but two totally different people. Um, Robin was all about being in there, talking to box office staff, going to work, see how props were doing, see hands-on all the time, going to talk to Cynthia and sewing costumes. It, it was very much collaboration all around set by him. He was in there at 7.30 in the morning and he didn't leave till midnight. And that set an example. It wasn't a nine-to-five job for him. John, and also there is a difference between American and English approach to theatre. I think John had worked a lot in American theatre and part of that is you have to be dramatic. The, the artistic director, the actors, all have to be personalities. I think I'm just talking off the cuff here, trying to pinpoint what the differences were. Um, 
it was the it was the performance with Robin it was the whole with John it was the performance um I think that pinpoints a lot and I don't know if that makes complete sense um but I mean we've worked through David William man of immense uh, background and experience, very cerebral in his approach. John Neville, a man of the English theatre, old English theatre in a sense, where Robin was a later generation, and John was very much the actor-director, um, but gained so much experience. Um, and then Richard... Lovely actor, hadn't been an artistic director, hadn't really directed. Uh, and I, I do wonder with him whether he was perhaps given the right opportunities um, that, again, it's growing up with the job. This is, this is Manette. Yeah. yeah. He was a lovely actor. And he did some, he had wonderful ideas going in there. But he started to get taken over by the board, administration, all those things. And you could see those ideas shriveling and those ideas. And he being taken over by people who didn't really know what the festival was about. And that was a very sad time in a way. I I know at um, I was at Shaw when they or I was just finishing at Shaw when they were jigging rejigging the mandate uh, because Shaw had been um, a very kind of constrictive they were they were restricted to uh, the time period of Shaw's life and plays written during that period and they extended it uh, to plays written about that period. Um, uh, after that, which expanded the kind of like material they could do, and certainly when it came to musicals, they were doing a lot more operetta kind of work, um, and they expanded it to sort of more modern musicals now. But Stratford's mandate seemed very uh, well. First of all, I mean, I talk, I spoke about this too uh, with Kevin Fraser. He he reminded us that Stratford was a festival. Not just the theater, there was also music elements and and they they brought in like Oscar Peterson and um, but Shakespeare still was center stage. and uh, over the years, obviously the Shakespeare work is still um, produced, but it seems like it's broadened. I, unfortunately, I blame myself at some of that. Okay, in what way? Um, John Hirsch came to me when I was head of design and said I, he wanted me to work with Brian McDonald. And I'd not worked with Brian before. I'd met him once before. You could put his back up very quickly, very easily. But anyway, um, we met at the Eighth. John said he wanted to start the Gilden Sullivan up. Brian and I clicked, not clicked artistically. But something happened there. And there was a group, it was Mike, it was Burke Carrier, 
Brian myself, but especially Brian and I evolving ideas. Brian trusted me. He went with the ideas I gave him. And the Mercado was probably one of the most financially and from the publicity point of view, successful shows the festival had. The board and everybody's, oh, money, especially after we did the gondolier, same thing, and then Iolanthe, then Cabaret. Musicals, that's the way to go. That's where we get our money. And I think if you're going to do those on the festival stage... At a festival like that. And I have to say, every time I designed one and I often set the concept and the way it was going to be done, it has to be from a new vantage point. It cannot be your traditional approach. You have to find new ways for the festival stage or for the avenue that look and feel like no other production of that piece before or since. And I'm not sure that's happened. So now it's money-grabbing time, I'm afraid, a lot of the time. And, uh, and I think that that sense of what it is to be a classical repertory theatre and a lot of North America, the States, that was used to make me cross, actually, the States wanted our standards, they wanted what we did. But when you brought them in to do those shows, especially in the design point of view, Desmond, Tanya, I, and the Canadian designers, other Canadian designers that followed on afterwards, the way we worked there with the production was being there. Yeah. Being there. We didn't just throw over our designs, you create them. So when we did it, assistants working with us were not having to design the show or do the fittings or anything. They were there to observe, to learn, to grow, to gradually filter in and take over those design roles. I don't think that's happening nowadays. And it makes me very angry because that system helped a lot of the designers in this country whether it was lighting or anything, and and that has disappeared because people coming in at the top did not understand how the system worked and why it was like that. If you know why it's like that and really understand, change it. It's not that we're against change, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It was a I got really cross with Drabinsky too because a lot of the really good production people was, and you can't blame them, stolen away to work on Drabinsky's because of the money. But what he wasn't doing was specifically keeping in mind the fact that they were being trained at Stratford. They were slowly working their way through the system so that they were trained. And I mean, the one thing, I think that the people I brought in as design assistants, that Michael brought in as design assistants, Pat Flad, Sean Kerwin, Liz Astin, I mean, Christina Dubiak, Patrick Clark, Deborah Hansen, Doug McLean, they all have gone on 
to do things. But I think it's because I made a point once I had a design, I thought, right, when I was in Vancouver, I didn't have those possibilities to work with really good people. And I thought I'd bring people in with some experience because all those people had been designing, but just so they could get the flavour of the place and how the place worked. Because Stratford can be very overwhelming and you need to be able to gently go into that system to understand how it works so that you, when you do end up designing, you know and you're not, um, overwhelmed by it in any way or taken advantage of it by, in any way. It's not happening now. Uh, I've had discussions with um, Michael Gianfrancesco, Dana Osborne, um, Lorenzo Savoini. They uh, all came later, you see. All came later. And they had experiences. This was even, this was in the early 2000s where American designers... Uh, not so much UK designers, but certainly American designers would come in, have a couple meetings, and then they'd be responsible for yes. implementation. Yeah. And uh, that wasn't the same way that other the other Canadian designers, the other designers who would work there mm. longer were working. And so it's remarkable that you bring that up because I think it's an important lesson. It made me lesson. very cross. Yeah. It was the one reason I didn't want to be around Stratford anymore because I could see that happening. I could see these people being very talented, but I thought, they need to be nurtured. They never need, again, it's being used. I don't like to be used. I don't like to see other people being used. And I also don't like people walking in there. I'm the greatest. I know better. This is old-fashioned. Get rid of all this. Sorry, dears. Been, we've had really high standards there, and there was a reason why there were high standards. And the trouble is, Stratford filters out across the country. People say, I worked at Stratford. How did you work at Stratford? People in other parts of Canada go, well, it must be good they worked there. No, sorry, not necessarily. And by the same token, though, it um, it's a real incubator for talent. Like, uh, again, like uh, John Ferguson, Sean Kerwin... Um, like a bunch of people who assisted there and then later designed there are many, like, like you mentioned, all those names you mentioned, the backbone of Canadian theater design. And you see, old Desmond Healy. Yeah. He was the mentor to so many Canadian designers. You speak to Sean about her, Gail Tribbick, all those people. Here was this world-class designer nurturing them, but there is a group of designers who come in and throw their weight around, knowing they know best, using the Stratford Festival, and then you wonder why it starts to lose that special quality that it had. And it was very subtle, very subtle. And it's... I. It's made me very cross. It makes me very cross to hear some things being said because if people now, oh, they don't understand. And it was a very special place. And I, I was so proud to be part of Canadian theatre at that moment because you could see it growing and developing. It was shooting up. And now, I'm not sure. Sure took over a lot of that, though, you know. 
I think it was funny that when I first went to Stratford, Shaw was the junior partner. But then Shaw started to take over far more of that role of being setting examples. I was always sorry, make mistakes, you know. I turned down a Bill Hutt directing job, uh, a designing for him, turned down a Chris Newton one. They don't know the reasons, but very good reasons from my part, not just saying, oh, I don't want to work them, I don't want to do that show. I just couldn't do them for very specific reasons. Don't ask you again. Yeah. And it, it's something designers have to face up. What you choose to do, how you do not do things, really, um, it's a juggling act a lot of the time. Yeah, I had, uh, yeah. I I, um, I want to hear, I want to talk to you about, because uh, you designed Cabaret in 87, uh, and that seems like a big turning point in musical theater at Stratford. But I want to talk to you about Desmond Healy first, because we don't, uh, I've spoken to several people about him, but we, I don't have, a, I don't think I have a good picture in my head about uh, who he was and how he worked and his kind of history at the at Stratford. Is, it, is that something you can sort of fill in some details for me? Like, Yeah. Um, it's funny, before we went to um, work at the festival, Mike and I had actually gone up to see a production. Or was it when we first went there? Worked out and walked out in the lobby and we could see Desmond. And I said, oh, Mike, dare I go and speak to him? He had that. The first production we'd seen of his was Duchess of Malfi. It was the most magical creative piece of design we'd ever seen. And here was a man who was a man of the theatre, who was theatre from top of his head to the tips of his poor old toes. And he was warm, he was generous, like Tanya. That generosity has also disappeared. I don't know quite why, but it's disappeared. Both of them were so generous, like Tanya coming up to a young designer and saying, that was beautiful, dear. And what that did to me, Desmond was the same. He was never afraid of praising another designer. He was never afraid of nurturing another designer, helping another designer. He would do magical things with fabrics and cloths. He painted, and you could see him working like he'd use his thumb to sort of suggest gluing on things um, and using things in a very imaginative way that were very... He always used to say to me, because he, he didn't actually, in the end, go to art school. He said, I'm not, not an artist. He was an artist in all aspects. He could create the most wonderful things. He started off as a milliner at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And he could work with his hands and prop people loved him. Because he knew, and I do think designers have to touch their hands to things. They have to work on 
all aspects so that they they have a feel of how things are built so that they know when something perhaps isn't going right in a prop or isn't going right in a costume, they've got enough practical experience to say, have you thought about, could you, would you, see if this happens, if you do this, this and this. And to be able to work around Desmond, he took over the whole design room with his personality. That warmth and talent that and experience. He was extremely experienced, and I told him I was so jealous of him. Um, and I... Th he would create things out of nothing... One of the problems that started to happen at the festival, both with me, with show productions like The Midsummer Night's Dream I did with Maggie Smith, or with The Mikado, there was a lot of experimentation in it. And with Desmond, neither of us knew necessarily how we were going to get from the two-dimensional design onto the stage. Again, it goes back to being around all the time, not going off to do another show, but being part of that creative process. And Desmond couldn't... Nowadays, they will often say, how many yards of trim? How many... You know, how are you going to do this? Designers are artists. You create, so you... Don't always know, and you need the time for experimentation to try out things, to do samples of things, that to see how they'd work. Not just as a creative piece, but how it would work for the actor. So for the Mikado, we could have mock-up costumes made because of the spacing on stage for actors to be used to trains moving around and what would happen if actors, you know, that they knew the spatial relation, what they were trying to avoid in a very small gold oval. Um, those things made all the difference. And the same thing with Desmond, with his clothes. It was... The actor and the character and the play were more important than anything. And the ability to be able to change things, build things as you go along, which the artistic approach gone out because it's all how many yards, how long is this going to take? I would, the Mikado, if I couldn't do that set now, because Roy Brown came up with a white paper fan. I said, oh, I love that, Ron. Stuck it on the back of my gold disc. Thought, absolutely fabulous. Then go to talk to Sarducci's in the scene shop and to say, all right, I want this to come out of the floor, but I don't want anybody to know. I don't want guy wires or anything. These lads aren't engineers. They're just theatre, scenic people who wonderfully inventive and that ability to talk directly to people if you have to start going through production manager technical director first car stage 
It destroys any creativity, that ability to go straight to the people who know what they're doing and how they're doing is one thing that made Stratford so great. Hi there. Yeah, I know this interview is going really well, but before you skip ahead, just shuffle over to the show notes if you could and click on the link to the Patreon page for the title block. It does cost money to produce this time capsule of theater design history, and for a couple of bucks an episode, you can ensure that I can continue to put out great interviews with designers like Susan Benson. Go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate now. Thank you for your help. When you first became the head of design at Stratford, like what was your first year that you got put in charge? Um, it was the year after Robin left, so ah. it was night. When, when John Hirsch, the story there was, um, you could see the, the place collapsing. Ah. The, there was no designers, no season in place because of its whole stupidity over John Dexter caused by a board doing oh. numbers. And um, you don't put people back into the production area very quickly if you start to lose them. Mm-hmm. I could see the season closing down, and John Hirsch had asked Michael and I to design the funny thing happened on the way to the forum with him at Cannes Stage. I'd done a history of American film with him and a Twelfth Night at Young People's, and we started working on history of American film, and John came up to it, to me, and he said, "They've asked me to be the artistic director. Would you be my head of design?" I thought that I, because having worked around Daphne Dare, mm-hmm. also not having very much confidence, in spite of the fact I'd done over two hundred shows before I went to Stratford. My mind went, I'm not ready for this. However, I saw that the theatre was in a mess. And this was Christmas time. John was doing show. I think he was at Seattle Rep at that time. And I'd enjoyed working with him tremendously as a director. Um, He was very much a man of the theatre, like the artistic directors, uh, Robin, David Williams, John Neville, all of those people had been pe- people of the theatre. They'd done major productions, run major theatre companies, and John Hirsch, the same. And so I said to him, well, I'm not sure, John, but I am con- very concerned that the festival will collapse. We had no designers. We had no productions. He quickly gave us a list. So it was people like, and these people don't get recognition, but... Uh, John Hayes, Richard Dennison, Muriel Sharon, myself, and Michael was getting the lighting design back into shape again, hiring people. And you know that normally the season at Stratford is put in place by beginning of middle of September at the latest. Mm-hmm. This was end of December and nothing. And wow. a lot of people don't know this. And um, the group of us, and a very small group, uh, really pushed it through. And then on top of that, the production staff, we all worked together and we got that opening at the same time so that the audience never knew there was this giant hiccup. 
So I was hiring design assistants, getting designers in, and it was quite an experience, I have to say. Yeah. And I, I often feel that we didn't get, as a group, we didn't get recognition for the, the work, the very hard work we did to get the festival to continue without a hitch because we were very torn because we we thoroughly enjoyed working with Robin. His style, his approach, his professionalism, um, difficult times, but many good people are difficult. But as I said before, his egos, his difficulties was always to do with the production. Um, but then... Um, trying to get that season on, and it went really, considering it went very smoothly. The only clue that there might be problems was when John came up to me and he said, where are these people? They're not talking to me. And I'm saying, John, they're working their butts off trying to get everything ready for you on stage. And he did like to have drama backstage in some ways even more than on the stage but he was a man of the theatre and I think that term to me is important to be of the theatre there's a special type of person when you when you um uh left Stratford was that part of your retirement then was that like the end I didn't retire okay this this gets into politics oh okay Growing up in the theatre, I was told stories about Lillian Baylor's feeding her actors in the wings of the mm. old bit because she couldn't afford to pay them, so she cooked them sausages and bacon. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a theatre like that that was dirty around the edges. I grew up in a theatre where there was a certain amount of humility especially from the great stars. Um, I grew up in a theatre where people apprenticed, rose up through the ranks. Um, uh, uh, respect. I grew up in a theatre with respect for older performers and people, members of the theatre company. Um, I grew up with the theatre that had respect for people's backgrounds and experiences. And I suddenly realised I no longer belonged to that theatre in Stratford. And I, after that, to have a senior actor, actress that I had dressed when she'd just come out of National Theatre School, saying that the floor, we, that you should look at the back of the, um, oh, what's the play, the people that produce the scripts, um, and they used to do floor plans at the back. Oh, like uh, Simon French and... French uh, copies. Look at that floor plan. I I was flabbergasted. Absolutely. Suddenly the theatre, and to have actresses suddenly saying how the design should work or not work, uh, to somebody of my background and experience, 
I thought, thank you, dears, very much. This is not what I want. And as I was seeing the reality of a real life outside with hospitals and so on, it just uh, made it very... I never thought I'd leave Stratford. I never thought I'd want to leave. Uh, um, I was appalled at the way Michael was treated. Um because he is a true artist, and then you get people coming along. He doesn't know what he's doing. I'll change it and make it all better. And I, I just found that appalling. The fact that older actors with so much experience were being kicked out of the company. And I'm going, you, it's that thread. You're losing that thread. Who there now has had contact with Tanya? Who there now has had contact with Michael Langham? Who there now has had contact with Cynthia? There are, are a few. But it's that thread, that path that needs to be followed. So you asked, and I have told you. And I appreciate that. I think that's an important message as well. Uh, I, uh, I want to back up and, and talk about uh, Cabaret. And I didn't, uh, I didn't end up seeing it. It was in 1997 on the main stage at Stratford. And, uh, but I had friends that went and saw it. Mm. I was a bit young. Uh, and I had friends who were older grades and, 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 and teachers and instructors of mine who had saw it. And they all thought it was extraordinary and, and su surprising and <sighs> invigorating. Um, and, uh, given that, uh, Stratford had done and, and had been known for the extraordinary work on the uh, um, the Mikado and the other operettas, uh, and to have suddenly now done cabaret. Um, that was probably a matter of audience and, and, and appeal and money and all the things that sustain the theater financially. But what was it like to sort of approach cabaret uh, on the main stage in the festival theater. Such, well, it's a different style. One thing I changed the way I put things down on paper, trying to capture the style of a piece. So where I might have used watercolor and pencil, I didn't, I used colored inks and oil pastels and huge bold things just to tie down in my head. Also, I was born during the war. I know what the war means. If I were to do cabaret today, I would make it even more so, and I would have made it really grubby and really nasty. It's a fascinating piece of theatre. Very tricky on the festival stage because of transitions. All the time you're going from reality to the unreality of the cabaret or the reflected reality of the cabaret. It says so much about that time, pre-Second World War. I do a lot of research before I do a piece, and I read about Germany after that, and you understand where a lot of that came from um, and where a lot of the echoes of what's happening nowadays are coming from. I think it's an extremely important piece of theatre, trying to get that flow 
on that stage, say enough with a piece of furniture, we wheeling it on and off, the practicalities are as important as the overall vision. I wanted to do the harshness, color, harsh colour palette of the cabaret in contrast to the very, um, which was a period palette of the people in real life, the browns and greys and so on. It's funny, Eric McCormack was in that company. I don't know if he remembers. He was one of the, I often, honestly, the people you look back on and being in a company. Um, and I think both Brian and I and Michael wanted to give the horror of what was happening. Um, I do think it's an important piece. And if Nicholas Heitner asked me to design it for him, I'd go like a shot. No, but it's... it's. Um, I think it's so important not to be clever with text, not to be clever with plays, to get down to the whys, the whats, hows, because you've got to convey that to an audience. That's You're conveying a story, a message or whatever, and if you mess around with it and try and be too clever and do exaggerated shapes and all that, you lose that contrast between the reality of what was really going on and then the splash and dash of the cabaret scenes which reflected that rea reality. Uh, it, you know, so often a cabaret can be very campy. I mean, there's camp in it. Mm. Um, sometimes I think we can boil it down to just the camp. Mm. And the, like in many ways, it occupies the same space in my head as like Chicago, mm. which is a totally different musical, but totally different mm. things, but the same kind of sharp and dark, dark, it has a darkness mm. about it. But I'm so glad that you reminded me that it is not just like the musicals are not just frivolous distractions, but they're important works that send messages and that yes. we can't ignore. And especially when you do it on the festival stage, it is not a proscenium show, it is not a Broadway show. It is a production that is saying something special, that is saying something different about that piece. And that piece, there are a number of productions that I've worked on, like Midsummer Night's Dream or Magic Flute. Or something. You think, oh, now I could do that in a different way. Cabaret is one of them. The basic structure of the play, no. But the look, how extreme do you make that reality? And I never feel in design that you should exaggerate so much that the audience doesn't become part of what's on that stage. If you exaggerate shapes and colours, and the, you have to ask, and Robin taught me this, why? If you can't answer why, why should you ask your audience to do that? can be very clever, very flashy, lots of colour. Has to have a reason behind it. 
Yeah, that's true. And I think that a lot of people approach it, they think the intuitive, well, one approach to design is to have an intuitive reaction to the script and then just sort of go with it. And if you are in tune with what's going on, then I think that can work. But there's a lot of theory and choices that are very specific behind it that you still, that you should be making. Because you're right, you're asking the audience to make a leap. And they better have a reason to, otherwise you'll leave them in the dust and confused. Yes. Yeah. It's good to shock them sometimes. But how you shock them, why you shock them. And sometimes people just do it to shock so what are you doing to your audience? Seen some brilliant things with the National Theatre. That's the closest I get to seeing theatre now, really, except when we get to Britain. They did an As You. This case of the close thought between the director and the designer, I think they have to collaborate. They have to be able to exchange ideas and grow. And this was obviously one because I saw it at the National on the television, on, on the films. And I thought, I don't like this, the court. Harsh colours, uh, patterned carpets, computers, desks, hard, so many people, so much visual noise. And I thought, this is dreadful. Then the Duke banishes Rosalind and the carpet goes down into the... Tr I've never seen anything like it, just technically. Those chairs, those computers, with some cases people on, go flying up. So her world disintegrates, that cold, harsh world of the Duke disintegrates. And she's in the forest with the lighting, shafts of light coming through in a totally different, organic, quite beautiful world. But that forest is made up of all these things that have been got rid of. How they did it technically, I do not know. That's where computers come in because you're flying. You're flying desks, uh, computer screens, that whole technically brilliant but also the, the the vision was so right for what they were trying to do and I thought perfect knitting between the designer and the director don't always get that um, I wonder uh, I want to talk about your 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 work in ballet but um, and I don't know if this is a boring question to you but uh, I'm curious because I have you here. Uh, you've done an awful lot of Shakespeare. You've worked in sort of the center of Shakespearean mm -hmm. theater in Canada for, you know, for 45 years. Um, do you think, what do you think is an, an approach that works, um, a design approach to Shakespeare? Like, what do you think it needs, it doesn't need? Do you have a theory about that or is it really just the director's vision and the time and the place and the, and the cultural context of that production that matters. I could, I've said often I could do myself out of a job. <laughs> I can close my eyes when Maggie Smith speaks and I can see exactly what it's like. And I suppose in a way I grew up. No, I didn't. I'd done a lot of shows before I worked with Robin, but working at that level... And it was all about the actor and 
a good actor with a good voice, which they don't always have nowadays, can speak upstage in the festival, no mics, nothing like that. So, but you can hear every word and every visual image can come to life. So basically, when you design, and obviously it's, you design differently for each piece you do, and you design dependent on, hopefully on the director's vision, and those vary a lot, you shouldn't need very much. That's what Tanya was getting at with that stage. It's a plank and uh, what I'm forgetting. It's the description of the O, the wooden O. That wooden O is more important than anything. And that's why that festival stage is so important and shouldn't be mucked around with because it is basically the actor on that stage and you shouldn't even need a designer. Perhaps a lighting designer to enhance, but you you shouldn't need that because those actors should be able to bring it to life. You can, but you can enhance it. You can elevate the world they're creating by what you use. But the choices. So what you said just earlier, instinct is most important. I always believe you go from instinct first. Then you have to go back and you have to ask why. And you have to pare it down and pare it down. You take away rather than adding. So the, the purity of it, the purer it is to give to the audience, the better. That makes sense. Uh, and what about, what about the modernization of Shakespeare or the changing changing the context of the play like uh, uh, that's well that's first uh, do you have any questions or comments about that do you think that that's when it was written it was done in modern dress right first production Robin did the, which Mike worked on I didn't was measure for measure brilliant production that was in modern dress however it was early 20th century and the reason he said it was much easier for a younger audience to accept people speaking, wearing clothes that they could relate to than pumpkin breeches. Um, I think it's the why is terribly important. Why are we doing this? And you should somewhere along the line be able to have a sense of why. And not do, as I say, not doing things to be clever. And the thought process, the thought questioning is so important. Uh, and uh, the other, I think, theme, uh, another theme that's come up on the show, especially this trip out to Vancouver, is the changing visual vocabulary of your audience. Yeah. Um, and for quite some time, audiences have been aging, and so there hasn't been a concern necessarily. Mm -hmm. Maybe vision, maybe changes in ability to see as people get older, but their visual vocabulary remains more or less the mm -hmm. same. As the audiences get younger, as you change the demographic of the audience, um, Mary Kerr and I talked about the flattening mm -hmm. of the visual vocabulary mm -hmm. because of screens and everything else. Um, I wonder if that is playing into the change. For example, I saw Guys and Dolls 
at Stratford today, two years ago, um, maybe three years ago, two years ago. Uh, first of all, guys and dolls is a bit of an anachronism these days. The hmm. script itself. Um, it's a classic. It is. It is classic, and I let and I'm happy to let that go. Hmm. Because it's a fun musical and I, and I have some nostalgia. But they redesigned the entire theater. There was a back wall, like the Mozovich stage was obliterated, basically. You have a new deck, you have a flat wall or a three-dimensional different wall upstage. It's all lit. And um, I don't know, audiences, if they're thinking visually, may think, well, that, that thrust stage I saw last year, I saw as you like it on it, was just so boring because we've seen that 20 times in the last mm. 20 years. Um, and yet you're making a case now for the actor and the voice, which I think are very compelling. Um, do you think that the visual vocabulary change is something that we should fight against? Should we, do we need to re-educate our audience? Do you think we should give into it? Or does it even matter? Well, it matters, obviously, does. And I sketch point. Um, passion and... Uh, I'm forgetting terms. Passion and a plank. The basics of theatre are the actor up on a plank talking to an audience. So if you go out from that... One thing that happens in opera design, and I've applied my thoughts about designing for Stratford to opera, you often get these extremely elaborate sets where the vision of the performer is that size and that sets that. And you think, okay, and to an extent that you cannot see the performer because of the scenery and you have to see the performer even though the voice is beautiful you're losing something so if you're going to do this if you're going and I think wonderful things being done with projections and things like that absolutely wonderful but it has to be done very carefully and again it's remembering I think we tend to forget the audience member we are doing it for the audience member. So we may get a lot out of this. Oh, look at this. Let's try this new piece of equipment. Let's. But it, is it really enhancing it for an audience? Now, the problem is that people are looking at a lot of screens. That screens are actually changing us as human beings. So as I'm talking, and I'm in my 70s, and I'm going, okay, perhaps it's true, they need colour and flash. Did you get, seeing that production, did you get anything more out of that musical knowing what the period was and the reaction of people historically, because it is our historical piece now, by having all this flashy wall and stage floor, do you think that it gave the audience more information about the play, about the music, about the text? If it did, fine. 
not sure that festival stage is the right place for it. Because it sounds like Broadway come to the festival. And I say that the festival's mandate should be to find things, not to be sticky about it and stick in the mud about it, but find ways that respect what the stage is, that it is in the round, it isn't a proscenium, it isn't flat. How can you do it imaginatively so that, okay, you do have elements of contemporary visual society in the design on that stage, but the thought process has to be there and it has to work with both the designer and the director communicating and exchanging ideas and not just the director saying, well, we're going to do so-and-so, or for that matter, some designers being so cocky and full of themselves, no, we'll do it this way. It's collaboration between all parts of that group, that family, that company. Uh, and I do want to say that I thought that the design team did an extraordinary job. Like it was a beautiful show. Mm. And um, uh, Donna Fior, her, her choreography was explosive. And, like I thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm. But um, it wasn't Shakespeare. And it wasn't like I could have enjoyed it on the Avon mm. or on Royal at the Royal Alex. Mm. Uh, and I would have not lost anything. Uh, sometimes I wonder if it's just that there are more seats in the festival stage than at the Avon. Oh, yes. That's you why know? they do them there. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Uh, and and things have to change. I don't, I don't want Stratford to become an anachronism in and of itself either because no. we want audiences are oh, yeah. going to demand. And um, uh, I did want to mention, let's talk about opera because you went there. Uh, like uh, opera very much has a larger than life at least the main stage opera. So this, there's a large movement of sort of new independent opera companies making interesting work with different genres of music and different approaches and different scales. But uh, even on the large stage, um, we still need to have a human scale going on. You're right about the losing the person. How, how, um, what was, do you remember the first opera that you ever worked on? Was that, that must've been a while ago. Oh, uh, that was in the States at the Cranach Centre. Oh, right, okay. So the opera is, is, is decidedly in your wheelhouse yes. from the beginning. Um, how did you... Uh, opera's funny because there's a lot of rentals and strange... Yes. Like, oh, like yes. all inter like You're integrating a lot of different ideas in a different way. Mm. So how do you manage that and how do you, uh, how do you approach an opera... Let's say the costumes are going to be rented, but you're designing a new set or vice versa. I've been lucky. The Figaro that's up on the wall there that I did at Banff was I did with Colin Graham, again, really great director, client um, born and all over the world. Um, that um, was built, all of it was built. However, when you get, you get new cars and you see those costumes going out to people that were not... I am a very tidgy, detailed designer because I know it's every little bit counts on a stage, however big the stage is. Um, 
so and uh, of the other ones that I've done in Canada, um, I mean, I did for a Gomer Court Fall Festival two Minotti pieces years ago, and some of that was rented, and you really have to know what you're doing. And that's, again, going back to the beginning, when you have no money, you have to be able to compromise, to be imaginative in the way you put things together. And I could usually more or less pull my designs together. Um, of the big ones that I did, um, often it's hard getting a connection between the set designer and costume designer. Robin Dunn, Don, very clever designer, did the sets for um, La Forza del Decina, which John Copley directed again, world-class director. Um, and I was very torn because I, I'd been asked to do these period costumes. Um, and Robin Don had done a very graphic set with giant spots um, creating texture on them. And he wanted me to pour white paint over the clothes. I was torn. I I could see how, but it wasn't coming from me. It, it's perhaps if I'd done the whole thing, and I I could have accepted pouring white paint over the clothes. Um, that was a very difficult choice. Um, so you've got shows, productions where you've got one two person doing sets and one doing costumes, and coming to terms with a cohesive look. The ones that have been my Madame Butterfly at the COC is always something that's very special to me because I was able to get a cohesion to it. Um, I did oh, one of the big operas, first big operas I did was um, Don Quixote, a New York City opera. That was horrendous because I didn't big, lovely drawings that I knew were right. So I took them down to New York, and I've heard that same story from other designers. Lovely, dear, lovely, leave them with me, and I'll have fabric swatches for you. Then I come back a few months later. Oh, you go back and swatch and find the fabrics. As you go back, bring the fabric swatches back, what you'd like. Then you go back the next time, and there were no fabrics bought. And you'll have <coughs> sorry, pulled from stock. The stock was down in the basement. And the trouble was the set designer done a wonderful set. I forget who it was now. All based on on those famous uh, Don Quixote engravings. So the costumes were supposed to go from black and white into colour, gradually adding in more colour, a very definite theme. It's not a show you can pull. Anyway, lovely wardrobe assistant and myself were down in the basement of New York City Opera pulling clothes, trying to pull. I'd had a lot of experience by then. Again, that's why you 
don't want to go into big shows until you've had a lot of experience because you can really land yourself in it. Um, but it's sort of production where Samuel Ramey was playing Don Kishore. Somebody stole his armour from outside the dressing room. So you get situations like that. You go, go away, go away, go away. Well, you've cared so much about, and I always did care terribly about my work, more than I should have done really sometimes. Um, and it broke my, I, I am a perfectionist, and it broke my heart if I couldn't get what I wanted. But you'd have occasions like that when nothing went together, and then you'd have occasions like uh, Madame Butterfly or Golden Ass. Golden Ass was disappointing because we didn't have a chance to take it further. Absolutely beautiful work done by the people at the COC on the sets and costumes. Time magazine ran photo spreads about it because it was so different and everything. And the trouble was when I first started designing it, the Colin Graham again was down at Opera Theatre for St. Louis. Robertson Davis had just died and the composer hadn't finished. Somebody on the board said to me when I got a chance to listen to some of the music, oh, you need to hear the music. I said, yes, it is the most important part of doing an opera because you get to get a sense of what it's all about. Even so, even though that was tricky from that point, doing a new opera with no backup, with Colin being away, no Roberts, nobody to feed me, it was still a fabulous one to work on. And I, I shall always thank the wardrobe and the painters, everybody that worked on that to build those sets and costumes. Fabulous. It was just then Colin dies, too big to continue. And it's disappeared in the midst of time. And Madame Butterfly follow, certain paths follow, and Gain is working with Brian, Gain the influence of the festival stage in the sense, and again relying on my lighting designer, which is Michael. Um, I always felt completely safe with him. Um, because it was all always about the show, not about him sort of being the lighting designer. Um, he always, and so many Desmonds loved working with him, and it was always about enhancing what we were doing as designers. But it was very important all the way along to enhance the music, not to fight the music, not to fight the singers. That's great. What a, that's a great bunch of stories. Thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, let's just touch on your ballet career, and then I want to move into what you're doing now um, with your portrait work and your return to sort of the fine arts as a way of expressing yourself. Um, had you done, um, you've done plenty of ballet, um, again, since back in the, I'm just going through your, your CV here, uh, back into the, into the seventies, I think as well. Mm -hmm. Um, ballet is a different or dance is a different, uh, 
medium. Tell me about this, your experience in the U.S., because you had gone to the U.S., uh, and this does connect, I think, because of the specialization. And I'm curious, uh, especially because this is a Canadian podcast, about how the differences in Canadian and U.S. work. Um, and and tell me about your, your kind of experience down there trying to try out new things and and what kind of designer you wanted to be. Yes, it's very interesting because I've always... A lot of people don't know I've designed a show because I approach each one in a different way to the show. But when I started off in the States, I was still a relatively new young designer, a more senior designer, being helpful, said you have to decide what type of designer you're going to be. Are you going to design for classics, for dance, for opera, musicals? I didn't want that. I wanted to be able to explore them all. And I've been lucky that I've been able to do that. Um, so it's uh, that was a learning curve down there. And I started off doing contemporary dance um, at the Cranach Center. I didn't get to do anything for a classical ballet company until... Um, uh, oh, golly, at the National Ballet, um, Reed Anson asked me to do Shrew, Take Me to the Shrew, which I actually did two summers ago at um, the Royal Ballet in Birmingham. And that was very interesting. I sat out in the audience looking at it, thinking, how the hell did I do all this? Because it was... Uh, it's a huge job doing a ballet, a huge job doing sets of costumes for both ballet and opera. But I do think that you need experience to do both. There are certain aspects, especially with dance. Um, and I wanted to be a dancer in my second life. I would like to be, be a dancer. A hard, hard life. Physically and mentally, probably the hardest of all, the performing arts. Um, my only regret is that I didn't do more ballet. Really rather regretted that. But it's, um, you're telling, it with the story ballet, it's like Taming the True and Romeo and Juliet. You're telling stories again both with your colour palette, with your fabrics, with your shapes. And technically it's harder than theatre. I mean, theatre can be very physical, but in a lot of, especially opera, unless you're designing for a chorus and a dance, uh, it's like at the court of ballet, um, you can drape fabrics and, and put things in structures that they don't necessarily have to move around in very much. Mm. They have to get an on and off stage mm. and through the doorway and however that happens. But uh, with ballet, it's physical. There's, there, oh, you, yes. Yeah, you can't. This, the shapes are probably more limited or you have to work with mm. the dancers more to get the shapes yes. you want. The two or three things that um, you find best cutters in the theater are the ones who trained to cut ballet first because they really understand the body there's certain fabrics that you can't use in a certain way because of flexibility and not restricting the dancer's body I know uh, going back to Romeo and Juliet I found that Prokofiev music is my favorite it's heavy and dark 
And I wanted to get the contrast between the lightness and delicacy of the youth of Romeo, Mercutio, Benvolio and Juliet in amongst these very grand, somber people and the music. That contrast is an extremely important part of designing. It's drama. Light, dark, swift, all all of these things you should keep in mind, otherwise it becomes static. And I put the ball into heavy velvets, heavy velvets and golds, deliberately because that music goes dum da dum da dum da dum dum very slow and I wanted it to be frightening. I didn't want it to be pretty pretty. The story again was too important. But you do have to have an awareness of fabric. You have to rely on your cutters a lot more. You learn over time and trying. When you're doing a period like Taming the Shrew, you have to be able to adapt the period to make it workable then for the dancer. But the one thing in fittings you notice, the dancer... It's about movement, being able to move. Opera singers, it's about feet. You have to be able to get them comfortable on their feet. They connect the ground with their feet. And the actor, it's about the character. Not so much movement. Opera singers, it's about breathing. They don't want to be... they don't be, want to be restricted in their lungs or around their necks. Uh, so it, that can often be very difficult when you're doing a Pinkerton and the necks are, are rather large. You have to adapt your costumes. And it, there are some designers that will go in, I want my design, I don't want you to change things. It's an art form. You grow, you make it dead if you don't grow. Your drawings are just the starting point. I was going to say corsetry and silhouettes are so so important in period drama. But uh, man, first of all, dancers need to dance, and they well they well the sort of traditional ballet body, a female ballet mm-hmm. body, is slim and may be able to to. It's easier to have an illusion of a corset while still mm-hmm. making it flexible. But uh, when when you're when you're corseting somebody who's trying to belt, man, like how how I guess you can't get away with much. But how, like, how do you do that? How do you how do you keep the silhouette and yet give them the freedom? You have excellent cutters generally who can do that, and you can cheat things to make look with Maureen Forrester with Ayalanthe. The bodice was all covered in different scales, so I um, in metallic fabrics and soft. So I used the placement of the scales, so they went darker, made it much darker into the waist. So you got the illusion. Also, the different bonings you can use very lightweight, flexible bonings and to be able to talk to a cutter. When we did *Midsummer Night's Dream*. Going from the the heaviness, the reality, the black and white court, into the delicacy 
of the forest, Cynthia McLennan and the other carters actually, and and you got an echo of the court costume in the forest costume, but where in the court costume we were into heavyweight boning and, and realistic construction of those costumes to give that very stiff, heavy feel. That version in the forest went to boning that was very, very light and flexible, like boning you'd use for a dancer, and where the petticoats had been heavy cottons with bands of boning ground to give the shape. In the forest, the same shape was achieved by uh, crin, horse at crin. Uh, so it moved. You got the shape, same shape, but it moved and was flexible. And that was important, though those two approaches to cutting in the same production again told a story, and it's the director, which Robin Phillips, wanting to give the feeling of them being free of the restrictions of the court going into the more sensual forest. So there's so many steps in the way designers looks at things, the fabrics, how the fabrics are put together. I loved it. Yeah, I can tell. Uh, the um, I had a question about ter uh, terrain and dance um, or the floor. Like in, you can build rakes and you can build mm -hmm. obstacles and things in theater and even opera uh, as long as you've got well, you've got probably much more room, I think, in a large opera than you do on a mm. sort of standard stage. But uh, ballet needs the large open spaces to get people moving. And um, how uh, do you think that that is, uh, is that limitation interesting? Is it something that you, have you tried to alter that terrain? And and how far can you push it before <laughs> you get pushed back from the dancers? I mean, this is their livelihood as well. They can't want to break an ankle out there or something. Right. right? Uh both the major ballets I did with the National were John Cranko's choreography, which calls for a bridge running across the stage and a series of stairs that come down off that bridge onto the stage. You also have to allow room for, was it, four couples deep and I think five couples across in the ball scene, for instance, so those take up a certain amount of space. So immediately, you know, you can't encroach on that space in any way. Um, in a funny way, the clothes become the scenery. Uh, often you look at ballets and their um, any structures are upstage that don't encroach on the main floor area and you've got you can have painted floor cloths but they're all dance floors um floor plans are very important though because i found that finding the movement pattern for a play is one of the first things i do and then work the floor plan up from there is that something that you always work with a director on or is it something you interpret from the script what starts for in the script and then yeah. go to the director. But the floor plan, I mean, there's some designers will do this. Bloody diagonals. Why they're so dangerous when you get a diagonal on stage, whether it's a point coming down stage or the reverse, actors can get trapped in those. They can't turn easily. And I think doing movement 
as part of my acting training made me very aware. And I think it was old Edward Atienza said something that somebody had designed it set with the drawer, the door hung on the wrong side. So it was very difficult to make an entrance onto the stage, on the stage. Which side do you hinge the door so it opens easily for the actor? Which way are they going to open it? I think things like that, the flow of movement on the stage is very important. So you've been uh, obviously, obviously working as a designer still, but you're doing a lot of your work out here at Salt Spring Island uh, as a solo uh, painter, right? You're doing paint, mm -hmm. like you're... you're, you're um, what's your medium? Is it oils? Is it acrylics? I use salts. Uh, yeah. I, I did 174 portraits of Salt Spring as last Easter. They were all in oils. But at the moment I'm working on a series of landscapes, which I call my restrictive vision series, which are long, narrow panels in pastel. Um, then I did some war paintings and a cross for the First World War that were all acrylic and charcoal so like my theater design i change my mediums depending on what i want to do what i want to try and achieve uh, and how do you find working uh, as, as a solo act not as it's not a collaborative process right i mean i guess with your subject yeah. it could be it's big move but, yeah. big move i realized something that as a personality I'm better on my own. Uh, I can't deal with a lot of people these days. That um, I think when you've been through a lot in life and you see the stupidity and arrogance of some people, I certainly don't have time for that anymore. Um, and the quiet of my studio and the chance to evolve ideas suits me as a person. And I did train because going back to my training, I was pretty young when I was at art college, and the own, and I didn't think I liked the theatre design courses being offered. And because these uh, a lot of painters were theatre designers, I decided to do painting. Best thing I could have done, because you're dealing with a moving painting, proportion, colour, balance of shape, line taking your eye into the picture, giving it focus, all those things that make the theatre picture happen, you get from painting. Um, it was hard to begin with to suddenly be on my own. I miss the collaboration. I miss the excitement of somebody, oh, Karen Rod with the mask for... The, the Romeo and Juliet that gave me other ideas for the set. It was ideas bouncing from one person to another that was so exhilarating, so exciting. I miss not working with fabrics. I thought about taking up tapestry work, tap weaving. There's a very good person here on the island who got the Governor General's Award, and I thought I'd go and chat her up. But I've got, I don't have to, my problem now is I've got so many ideas, so many things I want to do that um, I see my age being a deterrent. Um, I spend nearly all day, every day in the 
studio when, when I can, though lately I haven't been able to, and it's very frustrating. But it, it's opened up a whole part of my life um, that I really appreciate and I'm so glad about. Um, it's been very good for both of us coming here, actually. It's been very stimulating. Um, did you, I'm curious if you continued, I mean, because theater design is a very specific kind of practice and it's about communicating ideas to other people in a way that's in, in many ways incomplete because you fill it in with their practice or with the, as the rehearsal goes forward. Um, were you doing um, any completed, any complete solo work while you were in theater? Is that something you had to go back to and... Oh, all the years, all these years I've been working, I I painted. And the trouble is, you can't combine the two, I discovered. It's almost like your brain goes into a different gear. And one of the problems poor theatre people have, you need holidays, you need breaks, but all the time you have them, you're going, when's my next job when I go get money? You never truly relax. That's, That's one quite major problem but I would go take two or three months off and paint over the years then I'd be running out of money or I'd miss it or somebody come up with a big offer and I'd go back and I'd uh, the one thing I have discovered with painting now is you need the continuity of time in a studio not having your time broken up so one idea leads to another idea leads to another idea. Portraiture so, links to theatre. I know that's why I capture people. Mm. I've said that to people here because I've done so many portraits. And it links because you go into a fitting and you have 10, 15 minutes perhaps to pull together who the actor is, who their character is, who, what the director wants from that character, what the period is. You're pulling all these things together to create a character. So you have to feed off things very quickly. And I'm sure in my portraiture, that's one thing that's helped it a lot. Uh, do you, um, in theatre, again, we're also chameleons, where we work between periods and styles and to suit what we're, the story that mm-hmm. we're telling. Um, have you landed on, I know you're moving between media, but do, do you have a, have you, you must have developed your own style that you work in, that you're comfortable in expressing in in uh, in your solo work that is different than, it's a different solution than you're in theater. Like it doesn't oh, yes. change per day, oh, right? d- Not per day. Yeah. It changes. I work, tend to work in sets of drawings. One drawing leads to another. I've got a little bit of a, 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 what's the word, mind that takes off in different directions. Um, But generally I I work in about six or seven pieces in a particular style trying to evolve an idea. Uh, The portraits were the largest project I've ever worked on because these were eight by eight panels with a portrait on and they fill the exhibition hall here. Um, so that that there was consistency, certainly a consistency of style there. But I like, like to keep pushing myself. Somebody said it's the um, part of age 
that um, you don't want to give up on your age. You know, you want, I, just because I, this is something I'm very aware of now, my age, just because I've reached my age does not mean my creativity or my thought process has stopped. It's still going and it's, I, I, ha I have to keep painting. I have to keep creating. Um, I'm not sure I could go back to theatre now. I've changed as a person. I miss it in so many ways. And there are certain directors of those national theatre, I think, well, if he came and asked me, I'd come out to retirement and design. And I did design something a little while ago that actually set me going on another series of paintings um, I did some rough things for Crapslar's tape, and I thought, hmm. But I, c I'm very much aware of my painting now. It would definitely have a, um, a very definite effect on my designs. Another exciting aspect of having this conversation with you uh, now mm. is that Patricia Flood from a designer that we spoke to on the podcast about uh, two years ago, uh, who has in and of herself a remarkable design career and is currently at Guelph, has uh, been working with you to produce a sort of retrospective um, or a collection of your design work uh, and, and, uh, and presented in a book. Um, and it's out in April um, of this year. You can pre-sale on Amazon right now and on any other Indigo and places like that. What was it like to collect all that work together and to think about your body of work and what was important for you to have in that book that's not just a production but the message that you wanted to, to make sure it was captured. So I have to say this is Pat's book and Scott McCann designed it. They were both responsible for picking out which designs they wanted to use. Sometimes they weren't... I, I'm not sure. I was surprised by some choices, but it's their book. I was very tickled by it. I'm very tickled by the prototype I saw, the things I've seen. Um, it's very hard when Pat comes to you when you're in the middle of the Atlantic and says, now what age was this person and who was this person? When it's something that was happening like 60 years ago, very hard. Um, I did say to her at the beginning, because I started, as I was leaving Stratford, I'd put some notes get together about costume design and I just gave them to her. And she's been wonderful. She kept saying to me, you know, what do you think about Is this all right? You know, or if she was describing a show, I'd say, well, that didn't quite happen like that. What I did say and what she's tried to do is to mention people who built things because the audience never takes in. And as designers, we better take in the people who have created for us from our designs. And I know there are a lot of people I've loved their work that are not in the book, and I can't be... I said to Pat at one point, well, could you put their names down? Such a long list, incredible list, so we know 
we both know there are people there that should be there but aren't there. I don't think we've mentioned the name of any Miller now. Very important part of it. Or in the aim of any shoemaker and things like that. And some of the cutters I've worked with that have created such beautiful things and been so wonderful. I know they're not in there. It's just that the way the book was structured, the fact also that um, I, I, I'm surprised that the two of them, Scott and Pat, got it through because with so many photographs in it. But I said to Pat, the other thing is when you flick through the book, it's a sort of Canadian theatre history. Mm -hmm. Sad thing is so many people have gone that have photographs in there. But I do think the country is very young. Theatre is very young, whether we like it or not. And you've got to know your history. You've got to, I keep saying, you've got to know where you've come from so you know where you're going to. Which is why I've come here to talk with you. I think it's today. very important, love. Mm. Very important because you build up it solidly then. I mean, you think that really, I mean, I know that theater, some theatre productions in the 19th century, but um, basically a lot of it, well, let's say, Ecstasy of Rita Joe, 60s, 1960s. And there were designers then who weren't designers, they were actors turned designers. There weren't people specifically trained to be a designer. So I mean, I was there for Mary, but for so many people. And it's been a very interesting journey and so many clever designers that I don't want it to go downhill in any way. I wanted to keep going and producing work that the world looks at, not just Canada, the world looks at, because it's different or it's new or it's such superior quality as part of the production that um, it mustn't be allowed to slip. Well, Susan Benson, you are a person of the theatre. That is quite obvious. So thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Love it. It's been very nice. <laughs> That was designer Susan Benson talking to me from her home on Salt Spring Island in December of 2018. Next time, a fiery talk about design and justice with April Visco. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitlebloxca and on facebook.com slash thetitlebloxpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. Now, don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you ponder whether two planks and a passion are enough to satisfy an audience obsessed with screens. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block.
again. You can learn from your negatives as well as your positives. Exactly. And it goes back to ego. Mm-hmm. If you think you're God's greatest, you're never going to question those, and therefore you won't learn from those. Exactly. 